How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. We're going to keep on the theme that we were discussing on Tuesday, which is my recent trip to Ukraine. And later on, in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk to an old mate of mine who came with me, Sasha Kabanovsky, to kind of give the view of somebody born and bred in the Soviet Union, somebody who lived born in Kiev, whose parents were from that neck of the woods, who has the local view, the local view of where that part of the world goes. How are you, John? Now that I'm back, I'm, I'm yes. splendid now. I was a bit traumatized you were. the other you day, were. but I'm, now I'm actually I'm delighted you're back. You know, that could have gone any sort of way, but it's great well, that well, you're back. And well, it was a fascinating trip. And I'm still kind of chuckling away at some of the clips you were showing me from oh, the comedy club. The comedy club. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. But it, I was really surprised at that, you know? And as, as we spoke about on Tuesday, how life continues life on. Life goes on. Like, well, I tell and you evolves what, and all that kind of stuff. I'll tell you what was interesting. So the way uh, getting out of Ukraine is as tricky as getting in, right? Like <laughs> it, it didn't sound that tricky. You can you know, get a plane to, to, to Poland, you get a bus, and mm. all that, but it's tricky and it's a pain. Getting out is much more complicated. And oh. so I got a lift from Kiev to a place called Lutsk, which is on it's close to Belarus. And then I okay. waited for a bus, right? And you're in the middle of nowhere. And the bus may or may not come. And you is it like and the, the 46A. It's the 46A, yeah, exactly. They come in threes. They come at the same time, right? But the problem is you're kind of thrown out of the car with your rucksack. And you're like, yeah, you're all like, yeah, see you later. And then you're on a street in Ukraine on your own, right? Right. And you're thinking, and they, I said, is this a bus? Oh, yeah, da, da, da. The bus is there, coming. And uh, Damn, uh, uh, Tuesday. Yeah, and then you're waiting for the bus. And the first few moments, you're like, you're fine, yeah, la, la, la. And of course, on the border, there's no internet coverage at all. Right. Actually, one good thing that Elon Musk has done okay. is the Starlink project in Ukraine. 
Yes. Because they managed to keep, because of Elon Musk, when there is coverage, it is better than anything you'll ever get in Ireland. No, really? I swear to God, it's like, you know, if you've got four bars, you've got 10 bars on your phone, right? Jesus, yeah. Elon, why don't you put one of those satellites, so, just so sit it over Ireland? Over to Leary. Yeah. Just over to Leary. <laughs> now, the interesting, so Elon Musk, on the one hand, the Ukrainians were saying is, is advocating that they make peace and they do a deal with Putin yeah. and they don't like him for that. But actually, the practicalities of Starlink have meant, and you forget that, that communication is unbelievably important when you are under attack or when you feel threatened, that you can actually text your mates, you can actually go online, whatever. So where there is coverage, the coverage is amazing, but where you're close to borders, yeah. military block all coverage. Right. Because okay. obviously yeah, yeah. coverage gives geolocation exactly. and geolocation gets you killed. As we learned from the Bellingcat boys. Yeah, and it gets you killed. Yeah. So all around huge areas of Ukraine, there's no coverage at all. So you're, you're deposited there, you're thinking, hmm, okay, this is grand. I, I know Poland is generally that direction, maybe 100 <laughs> miles or right. 200 miles, and uh, I'm in the middle of nowhere. And then eventually you just hear the bus trundling up, and it's, everything's dark because it's, it's a blackout. It's yeah. a curfew, so everything is dark, right? And you just see this bus trundling up, and the bus was coming amazingly. Think about this. From southern Ukraine, from Odessa, all the way to Warsaw, right? Wow. So it's been on the... It's a bit of a trip. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So I get in the bus and the, the bus driver's looking at me and he's like, where are you from, Ireland? And he's like, saying, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing here, man? In the middle of nowhere on your own? Yeah. And so you get in the bus, but to come back to your point about humour, everyone says hello yeah. on the bus, right? Everyone's chatting, kind of goes around. There's a, there's a foreigner on the bus, uh, an, an Irish bloke. He's got red hair? He's got red hair, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and they're all chatting. And suddenly we're all chatting. So it's a humour. It's just, it's humans. It's humanity under conditions of adversity. Yes. It's all yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. talking, chatting. What are you doing here? La, la, la. Where are you going? I said, I'm going to Lublin, which is just over the border. They said, we're going to Warsaw. I said, where are you going after that? We're not too sure. Maybe Berlin. Like, it was a very... Were these guys getting out these of... These are women, women, women. women. No, no guys. Out. No guys. Okay, but but getting out getting of... Getting out of Ukraine. Right. With all their belongings. With all their belongings, you know, mm. and they've got those little, you know, those, those bags that you see in Central and Eastern Europe all the time. They're kind of multicolored, big quite a heavy yeah. bags you can carry loads of. And then... Laundry the, bags, the, kind they're of. They're kind of they? big laundry bags, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. full of everything. And then what you realise is, and again, I, I, I think I mentioned it on Tuesday, the idea of being displaced. We waited, so the bus takes off and we're all having a chat and people can speak English, other people can't. All of a my my really bad, rusty combination of Russian and Croatian yeah, yeah. comes together. But it was it's a Slavic language, so people are quite impressed, you know, a couple of words, and they're like, oh, my God. Anyway, then you arrive at the Polish border, and we waited for five hours. Five hours. In the for middle what? In the middle of the night. So at, For what, though? From, from 1 till 6 a.m., and that really pissed me off because it was the Polish side, it was the EU side that just, decided that they might not necessarily expedite people going through. So we'll wait in the bus, then somebody will come on, we'll take Is it just pass. waiting for the, the, the morning shift, as it were? Yeah, to... and it was a real pain in the ass, and I felt yeah. like saying... I felt like saying, do you not know who I am? Exactly, exactly. You know my, my podcast? <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the sort of the ritual humiliation of the yeah. second-class citizen. So the Poles know that they as members of the European Union, are first-class citizens. Mm. The Ukrainians, as refugees, are second-class citizens. 
And it's the way in which the time of the second-class citizen is regarded as inconsequential. Yeah. So we'll make an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours. Like, you could see Poland. It was 100 yards away. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was just these three lads decided, you know, we'll, we'll go for a cup of tea. We'll go for a coffee. We'll pull down the shutters for a while. And I kind of thought to myself, we as Europeans, yeah. members of the European Union, you know, we should be much more cognizant of the fact that the vast majority of people in that bus who were really lovely to me mm. are traumatized. They have been traumatized from a war zone. Of course, zone. Yeah, yeah. But then we go into Poland. I've, by the way, if we've got a Polish audience, I've never been so delighted to be in Poland in my <laughs> life. <laughs> got over the border and said, oh, thanks for the chases. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for the chases. And One bit you skipped over there is, you got to train in. Why didn't you get to train out? Ah, because very few trains out. So the train lines are sporadic, right? Okay. Uh, but also they're booked up. Completely oh, booked. really? Yeah, okay. well, I mean, so do you know who I am? You can't go in. It's not like getting the dart and say, do you know who I am? Like, uh, no, I tried to get the train. They said, sorry, mate, there's, yeah. no, there's no seats. So then you've got to go right. on the okay. on the hitching a lift, getting a bus, the middle yeah, of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, to bring it back, you know, on Tuesday, we had a brilliant discussion and you described your trip, which was fantastic. And, and gave I'll us take a, you the next time. Well, I'd love to go. I really would love to go. <laughs> Imagine the two Egypts on the bus. <laughs> but there was a gave great kind of sense of life in a war-torn city. Yeah. And it's fantastic. And that was the Ukrainian view. But as we also said, there is the opposing view. Or somebody, somebody from Ukraine. So what we're going to talk about, John, we're going to talk to Sasha Kabanovsky, who came with me. And, well, actually, I actually went with him. In right, fact, okay, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to give you a, a little bit of background, I, I told on Tuesday, but, uh, you know, life is bizarre over the years. Somebody once said to me, and a mate of mine, an Israeli mate of mine, Pinkas, remember Pinkas? Oh, yes, Landa, yeah. And he said to me... In his very deep voice. He's a very deep voice, yeah. yeah. He's like Eeyore for the thing. <laughs> yes, like it's all going to end horribly. And he's a little bit pessimistic <laughs> about the world. But his wife, Judith, one day said to me, she said, you know, some people in the world collect stamps, and David McWilliams collects friends. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, we were just laughing one night. So Sasha, just, just to give people a sense, on Tuesday, I, I, I said this, but I'll reiterate it again. So years and years ago, I had a mad idea to go to Russia to learn Russian. Mad idea, 1991, middle of the end of the Cold War, struck me as an incredibly intelligent idea to do. So I arrived in this small school in a town called Novi Ruza in the middle of nowhere, which is on the, people who know that part of the world, it's on the, it's on the road from Smolensk to Moscow. Right. right. And the next stop is Belarus. So you're in basically Western Russia. Okay. And I had a teacher who, God bless her, uh, was trying, Tanya was trying to explain to this Irish bloke about Russia and Russian language. And then I got a bit bored after about, Two months of being a little <laughs> bored. Yeah, I got bored of Russia. <laughs> and, you know, we kind of got quite conversant in Russian. But anyway, I've forgotten most of it. But I wanted to go to Leningrad mm. because that was the big city. Now, Moscow, I'd been to because there, there was a train to Moscow. But I wanted to go to Leningrad. Leningrad, for some reason, was more evocative, more historical, more interesting, all that sort of stuff. And she said, yeah, you can go to Leningrad. and You can actually stay with my cousin. And that's what gave me a real sense of how Russians lived. I stayed in an apartment, 
tiny apartment, maybe the size of... Well, those kind of real Soviet... Yeah, block, that, I mean, oh, yeah but the block. 30th floor. Jesus. And there were three generations of family. There was the cousin mm-hmm. who was married with kids and the granny. So there's the granny, mum and dad, and the kids all in two rooms. God and me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bing bong, how are you? It's me from Dublin, right? I'm looking for an ensuite. <laughs> exactly. Because I uh, kind of can't quite believe, as you said, there's no spa opportunity here. But anyway, my teacher said, you can't whip Leningrad on your own. You're, you're just too, you're too obviously Western, yeah. right? And you can't speak the language. You think you can, but you can't. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's an overnight train. It's about 20 hours and you're going to get robbed or worse, right? Yeah. So you need a Russian to go with you. And she says, my daughter will go, go with you. So we traveled to Leningrad. Then I left Russia, la, 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 la. And over the years, keeping an intermittent contact. So Sasha, who came with me, mm. is Nastia's best mate. Right, so okay. that's how okay. we know each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's weird how life goes. You meet people years ago, you stay friends with them, and you end up, suddenly you're on the Polish border, you know, on your own saying, how did I get here? <laughs> this is not my beautiful wife. <laughs> this, is not, this is not my beautiful house. David Byrne, we were going to genuflect to you. So let's actually go and talk to Sasha because he's from the region. Yeah. He's going to give us his view, their view, what's going on. So let's go and talk to Sasha, who's now in Berlin. Sasha, how are you doing? Good, thanks, David. How are you? I'm on ground. It's slightly, I, I love the idea. I, I went over with my typical Irish optimism about the weather. Uh, and after about five minutes, Sasha says, I think you're slightly, we, I, mm-hmm. I, we met at this border crossing in Poland and he looks at me and says, I, I think you're slightly underdressed. <laughs> I would have said nothing had I not warned you four times to dress warmly because it was expected to be very cold where we were going. This is your returning blue, Mac. The indomitable <laughs> Irish optimism. Exactly. All the time. All the time. So, Sasha, just, in, you know, give me your sense now. You're, you're, you're back in Berlin a couple of days. What's your sense of the of the week we spent, the trip? Particularly, you went to see your family, you met old friends, you got a feel for what I thought was quite interesting. When we went down to the metro, you said, my God, it's like being a kid again. This is exactly the same as it was when I was a kid. Same sounds, same smells, same metro. Same trains. Same trains. So give <laughs> me your sense. Give me your sense as a, as, a, as, a, as a born and bred Ukrainian of what you just saw. Oh, um... I'm still trying to process it because um, the last time I was in uh, Kiev was in 2013 at the end of the year. And actually, I walked around the Maidan when Ukrainians started protesting against uh, the deal that Yanukovych wanted to cut with uh, with the Russians. And the feeling there was it was amazing to see thousands of people standing out in the cold and and actually demanding to be heard and, and um, uh, standing up for their rights. and. Um, Going back now, we we saw the result of that, right? We saw we saw what that 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 led to, and this indomitable spirit of not uh, giving in has brought war. And um, I I don't know how to exp- explain it. I don't think that I can relate. To, I relate it. I mean, I you know, how would you feel if you if you saw when we drove into the city? The first thing that we saw was were were the t- anti tank hedgehogs and and pillboxes in the middle of a European vibrant European city, a beautiful city, right? Yeah. And um, I still can't process it. I, I think it's 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 too it's it's too difficult to put that in context. What it 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 
it's one thing to read about it. It's one thing to to see it on TV. It's completely different when you see the sounds, the smells. I mean, you know, it, when we went to Barajanka and, and we still smelt the, the burnt out housing. I mean, how can you relate that six months, almost 12 months past? Yeah, we went, uh, just so you know, we went to Bucha and Barianka, which were the places in Irpi in the suburbs, which, and again, to put it in the context for, for listeners, these are like normal suburbs, about 20K outside the city. You see normal housing, you see people going around their business, and then you're presented with the extraordinary image of its brutalism, its vandalism, its violence. Uh, and amazingly, as Sasha said, the place still smells charred, which is a kind of a very eerie feeling. But Sasha, I want to ask you about your your aunt and your family that you kept going over to visit. Uh, I was I was deposited in the hotel, and Sasha kept going up 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 the road to visit. Is how, how are they? Tell me about them. Tell me about their background. Give us a sense of your background as well. I mean, of, of who your people are, what they feel now about it, how they are coping with continuing to live there. So to put it into context, I grew up, I think I, I had a very sort of typical upbringing and background for most of, of the people in, uh, in the Soviet Union, at least in the European part of the Soviet Union. So my grandparents were war veterans. My, my grandfather went from Kiev to Berlin in the cavalry unit. So the, the losses in the cavalry unit in, during World War II were, were horrendous. And uh, he brought the war back with him. Uh, for the rest of his life. Now, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was in the underground in, in, in Kiev. And my ter- my paternal grandparents uh, lost the entirety of their families uh, in Babi Yar when, when the Nazis uh, executed uh, 33,000 Jews. Um, and my grandmother escaped uh, because uh, a local polizei warned her that she shouldn't go to the gathering place with the, with the Germans. And um, she evacuated the uh, from Kiev on horseback, and uh, she lost her her firstborn son to uh, to starvation along the way. So, um, but uh, we were all brought up with a great sense of pride and love for that achievement, and I think that everyone's uh, sense of of the Soviet Union and uh, was based on that uh, the defining moment of World War Two. And no one really, I mean, okay, we understood that we were Ukraine. Um, there was Russia, but there was a sense of of unity where you don't you really one could interpose Russia Ukraine for the other without too much problem. But uh, that's gone. And explain to me, growing up as 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 a child of the Soviet Union, that sense that the Soviet Union was something to be proud of, something also permanent, and something that wouldn't you know something that you could look back to the Second World War, you could look back to the achievements of defeating Nazism and say, that's, a, that's enough, that's us. Yeah, I, well, in essence, there was the, the, the World War II defined the Soviet Union, and World War II, I think, prolonged the agony of the Soviet or the communist state because it gave legitimacy. This was a common, a common this was viewed as a titanic achievement. 27 million Russians died or Russians, Soviets. Much of the fighting, and actually 20% of the officer corps were, were Ukrainians, and, and actually two of the best artillery schools in the Soviet Union were based in Kiev, and that's one of the reasons why the Ukrainians are, are doing such a bang-up job of, of using artillery against the Russians, because um, there is a really strong military tradition 
um, of, of, of excellence uh, stemming from World War II and, and before that uh, in Ukraine. And this is one of the reasons why the Russians are having such a difficult time uh, currently. But just to finish up very quickly, World War II, there's nothing beyond World War II. And all of the rhetoric and, and all of the, the crap that uh, the Putin regime has been building their policies around, their legend around, always goes back to World War II. And they've completely crapped all over that achievement that, that all of the people went through um, in 45 and, and completely denigrated it at this time. Now, it's funny, when we were, when we were traveling on the, the train from Poland, you said to me, as somebody born in the Soviet Union, it feels like you're kind of divorcing Russia. You're kind of falling out of love. Expl explain that to me. Well, you grow up with this, with this legend. You grow, I mean, you're, you're a child, right? <clears throat> and uh, it's very, very easy to manipulate children into these legends and Santa Claus and whatever else, except for our, the Santa Claus in the Soviet Union was, was uh, Lenin and, uh, and the, the, the bright tomorrow. And uh, as you grow up, this, this is the problem with the Soviet system. They gave you a, a relatively good education and they taught you to, to think uh, to some extent. But if you were an honest uh, and decent human being, you could not close. The more you learned, uh, the more apparent it became that there was no glory to the system, no glory to the past. And, and in fact, the past was a, was a huge lie. And one could, uh, if you are intellectually honest, Nothing but shame, regret, and sadness would define Russian history, Soviet history. And when, wherever you dig, wherever you, you, you look, the, the, the fig leaf, as soon as you remove it, there's nothing there except for pain. And so, in essence, yes, it is. And, 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 and the, the, the Ukraine is going through a very painful divorce, paying for it with tens of thousands of lives. But they will never go back to Russia or, or the supranational state because, well, it will not exist in the near future, but what it offers is darkness. There is a good and an evil, and, and, and in this conflict, in this situation, the evil is clearly defined. And, and tell me about like your Russian friends. What are they seeing? Because I mean, now you've said that when you were a kid, when you were younger, when you were growing up, there was no real distinction. Ukrainian Russians interchangeable, families were interlinked, marriages between Ukrainians and Russians were totally par for the course. Now, what do your Russian friends feel, think? What sort of, are they foreboding? Are they optimistic? Are they in any way realistic? What's your sense? Most of my Russian friends are no longer in Russia. Uh, only a few are left. And they've basically, they have reasons for staying that uh, one can respect. I guess. And um, they are in a situation akin to, to the Stalinist era of, of the 1930s. They say nothing. They hold no political discussions at home. The children are under, are under strict instruction not to speak publicly of the views that, uh, that they hold. And there is a clear realization that this is the end. There is no hope for tomorrow. There is no I, a sense of a brighter future for Russia. They're they're looking or they're awaiting the situation to take its course, and uh, it's it's going to lead them where it will lead them. But uh, <laughs> there isn't a, a rainbow at the end of this uh, uh, of this story. What amazed me in Ukraine, well, it doesn't amaze me, but it's something you know when a nation is under attack, 
something bizarre happens to the character, the spirit, the courage. I don't know, I don't know what, what you call it, but what's interesting for me is that the Ukrainians' sentiment wasn't rage. It was kind of resilience. It was almost like cheekiness. It was always like sticking your two fingers up and saying, okay, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. And we know your heart. And we are deep down. We are scared, but we're not going to be bamboozled. We're not going to be terrorized. How do you think this ends? number one. And number two, what do you think happens to that part of the world, to the Russian empire? Because what was very interesting for me was the way in which Ukrainians continue to talk. And we're talking about two Ukrainians, young and old and various different backgrounds. They all refer to this idea of the end of the Russian empire, that this is an empire imploding and that Ukraine is part of that process of empire diminishing the end of the empire. Where does, where does it go? Where do you think? Well, I think, like I think that, as I said in the initial podcast with you, I think that that this falls apart. How it falls apart, whether it's uh, it's a huge mess or or whether it's um, controlled, but there's no underpinning ideology. There's no underpinning society. No economy. There's nothing to hold this country together. A country, once again, that does not value its people. A country that that has easily, easily said goodbye to 10 million highly educated young people who chose to go West. How can we talk about a future? Because, uh, and, and, and of course, okay, you know, the argument was uh, economically strong because uh, of, of its natural resources and, and militarily strong because it's, uh, of its huge military. Both of those are proving to be false. What's the price of uh, natural gas in Europe today? as opposed to uh, expectations. It's falling. And actually quite interesting in the Russian uh, telegram chats, well, Russian opposition telegram chats, they have uh, a lively discussion about a potential scenario where Putin is deported to China under Xi's protection. And uh, that will be his guarantee of a, of a retirement. And it will give him an off-ramp for uh, basically keeping his life and a few billion, and uh, it will give an opportunity for some sort of a negotiated peace. But as you and I learned when we were in in Ukraine, uh, any sort of discussion that uh, allows Russia to keep territorial gains in Ukraine is is not going to be entertained. Maybe not because the uh, I mean maybe the politicians would have uh, been ready to accept this or discuss this, but you heard the people. The people are 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 now driving this process. And, and no one is going to be kowtowing to any demands by the Russians. Yeah, no, it was very, very clear that what the Ukrainians demand is a full withdrawal from all areas of Ukraine, what I would call Ukraine proper, and from Crimea, because Crimea is slightly different. Again, I'm not sure that the West will be able to deliver that. That's you know, at the end of the day, there will be some sort of cease. There has to be some sort of ceasefire. But it's very, very clear, Sasha, that what you're saying is that, and what the Rus- the Ukrainians were saying is that Russia has to be brought to its knees in order for the peace and the ceasefire to be permanent. That's what I got from the Ukrainian side. They said, if we do a deal now, a partial deal, a halfway house deal, it's only a matter of years before this this war starts again. No, there, there is no deal that can be done that allows Russia to lick its wounds and uh, and somehow uh, rebuild. Because uh, at the end of the day, 
they will keep coming back. There's there's a there's a conviction that they will continue to come back because there is no other ideology that's going to be keep that society going. Sasha, what I want to ask you is how do we reconcile the Russia of Joseph Brodsky, of Pushkin, of Tolstoy, of the greats, of the extraordinary mathematical tradition, of the extraordinary scientific tradition, of the unbelievably brilliant literary and intellectual tradition of Russia, and the achievements of the Soviet Union in in its entirety, and there are achievements. How do you put that Russia, the Russia of the greats, and how do you square that with this Russia? And what for non-Russian, non-Russian speakers from non-Russian audience, is there a way of understanding the two extraordinary extremes of Russia? The two extraordinary. So we we had a Tuchev quote last podcast. Give us it again. I'll give you a different Tuchev quote. Russian history before Peter the Great is one of more is a memorial service, and after Peter the Great is a criminal case. <laughs> and um, I can send quote after quote about what the greats thought about Russia. And this is a great illusion, right? Because the greats were never appreciated in their time. They were always treated and oppressed almost as criminals and, and, and opponents of the state. From Tolstoy to Dostoevsky to Glinka, this is a history of brutality. The greats were the greats because perhaps because they were oppressed and, and, and they saw the inadequacy of, of the country. And if you if you really read the their works, they're they're not happy works. They're not talking about how wonderful life is in Russia. And there is no happy ending unless you consider you know salvation. Well, of course, <laughs> salvation salvation at the end is is a nice thing to look forward to. But one would like to have a few nice days uh, here on Earth, and that's not what Russian literature is about. And just before we go economically, right? We're looking at Ukraine. It's very clear to me that Ukraine is a country that has been riddled by corruption before the war. It has been a wholesale kleptocratic country before the war, not unlike Putin's Russia. In actual fact, very, very much a mirror image, except for the fact that it has this bizarre, and this is what I was trying to understand, it is a kleptocracy with a vibrant democracy. So any country that votes in a different president every time around since the start of elections in the early 90s, is a vibrant democracy. Any country that actually votes in a guy who is a comedian is a vibrant democracy. It's a really good sign. Comedians are always a good sign, David. They're always we a good that. sign. They're absolutely right. You know, yes. we went to the comedy club. When and you turn was... to the comedians, that's the, you're on the right path. No, but, but, but it's a really, it's an impressive sign of a vibrancy, of a forgiveness, of an ability to take a chance it's a sign that obviously the oppressive big man doesn't have all the control at the ballot box. But on the other hand, Ukraine was a classic kleptocracy in terms of economics. How does that change as we look forward? David, you, you, we talk to, as you said, we talk to a lot of people. We talk to, to guys in the military. We talk to aspiring politicians. We talk to comedians. The one message that we heard across the board was we're not going back to the old ways and and there it's not perfect ukraine was never perfect but the soldiers who are fighting the war the clear message from them is we're going to beat one disease and we're going to come back from the front and we're going to beat another and corruption everyone every thinking human being in ukraine understands that corruption is the is the devil that that needs to be conquered and um 
Whether or not they succeed is a question mark. It's a it's a tall order. But when the entire country is talking about this, it gives you hope. And finally, the message that we received loud and clear from Ukrainians was that the big still imponderable, although I think it's less imponderable now, is the West's support. I think the West has changed dramatically. I think up until recently, there was a perception of just give the Ukrainians enough arms just to hang on and let's hope there was going to be a settlement of some sort and let sanctions do their thing and that ultimately the economic weapons will bring the Russians to the table. That is not going to happen. And it seems to me we've seen a massive shift, even in the last couple of days from the West, in terms of the West now saying, if we give the Ukrainians more aims, they could actually go and win. I'm not saying win on the ground completely, but actually change the military dynamic to such an extent that the ceasefire will be beneficial to Ukraine. Is your fear now that the West does atrophy, that Putin's long-term game is still stay the course, grind it out, and over time, a change in the United States, maybe at the top, the Republicans coming in. You see Germany is still very, very nervous about giving its fulsome support to Ukraine, that it will atrophy and that the Ukrainians will be left abandoned, or at least isolated and weakened. Well, it... It seems like like that's the only option that, that the Putin regime has at this point in time, is playing for time. And they know that democracies are really bad at drawn out conflicts, and they know that, that people's attention spans are limited. And, of course, uh, if there is an economic downturn in, in Europe and, and in the U.S., the stomach to continue to support um, Ukrainian fight against Russia is going to be, well, not as strong as it is at this particular moment. The remedy to that is is to arm Ukraine as quickly as possible to give it a chance to to resolve the situation in the summer because technologically Russia cannot compete with with anything that the West has been providing Ukraine to this point. The messages out of the expectations or the forecasts out of all leading Western think tanks is for a drawn out prolonged combat um, period of of a year may, may stretch out into into twenty four. I have a personal view on this. Give me it. I tend to to be more hopeful, and I think that there's going to be a resolution during the summer. And I think that that once Russia starts to crumble, it's like '91. It crumbled. The whole thing fell in a day. Cole and was meeting with with Valesa, and uh, Cole was laughing at Valesa when when Valesa was telling him that it's a matter of months before the wall comes down. Cole was telling him that, that he's dreaming. The next day, the wall came down and Cole said that uh, he was at the wrong party and went back to Germany. In this part of the world, the Colossus is on very shaky ground and it can collapse underneath him very, very quickly. And in this part of the world, things tend to happen very quickly. So that's my view. But once again, I'm, I'm an optimist. Hopeful. Well, listen, Sasha, we will talk again and... Uh... Maybe we'll just uh, get those rucksacks and go back to Kiev at a certain stage in the spring, if you fancy it. <laughs> you know that I do. Great. Anytime, any place. <laughs> you've, got a, you, you, you've got a friend in me. Well, I just say the last time I, I, I just saw you, we, the, the pair of us were at the border in the Poland-Ukraine border for five hours. Was it five hours last, last weekend? Yeah, about that. About that. And I was doing my typical Irish optimist turn to sort of indignation. And I was about to march up to the Ukrainian soldier and say, 
let us in. And Sasha just you know said, who I am. <laughs> Sasha just said <laughs> that, that, that he actually said that. So you know who I am. No, I didn't. I said it to you. <laughs> Taking the piss. I didn't say to the guy. But tell me, what was that expression in Russian that you had when you were leaving the Soviet Union? Don't say hope until you leave Chop. So explain that to me again. Chop was the border town between Ukraine and uh, Czechoslovakia that uh, that all emigres had to go through. And so until you actually went through this town of Chop and, uh, and, and were out of the Soviet Union, uh, one would never dare to speak uh, the way that you spoke. And it was quite funny because... Overly optimistic. Well, it's just funny. It's also a legacy of your past, your youth, your life, that you still had that fear that you had as a boy of soldiers, border guards, the authorities that something awful could happen just at that last moment, just before you, we, we got out. And of course, I had the Irish... That last with- moment is always the most dangerous, David. That's always yeah. the most dangerous. Yeah. Genetic memory is 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 hard to beat. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. Sasha, let me talk to you again. Take care, man. Always a pleasure, my friend. Take care. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you know, the one thing about Sasha there, it was just fascinating to listen to him. But what was palpable was the emotion and the pain. But even within all of that, he was ultimately optimistic. Look, it's a, it's a weird thing. So there's a guy whose entire maternal side of his family were killed in the Holocaust. Yeah. Entire. Right. That image of, of leaving Kiev on horseback is... Yeah, like so his mother, his mother was the only one of her extended yeah. family to get out. So there's a thing in Kiev at the time, it was called Baba Yar, where 30,000 Jews were killed in two days by machine gun, right? Mm. And all his family were part of that. So the pain, the emotion, the strain, the trauma, I, I think it comes down through, it comes down through genetically he was laughing it was genetics yeah. but it actually comes it's folklore it's what your parents tell yeah, you it's yeah, your yeah, grandparents yeah. tell you what happened to my people right and he is part of that generation of soviet citizens whose pain was hidden by the overall umbrella of the great glory of the soviet union yeah but every single family has their story 
And every single mum and dad has their story. And every single grandparent has their story. But in that world, you weren't allowed to tell the story. Your story became subsumed into the greater Soviet thing. So with Sasha, you know, that's exactly what is that pain you talk about. Yeah, yeah. And that trauma. And I think for a lot of Ukrainians is, oh my God, are we going back there again? Are we going back to this? But we should end with the fact that Ukraine is going to become, or is now, the most important country in Europe, if not in the world, geopolitically. Yeah. It's energy, it's politics, it's military, it's Cold War, it's everything, right? No other country or no other region. And it's really interesting, in our lifetime, John, Europe shifted to the West. So when we thought of Europe, we thought of France and Denmark and Netherlands and Britain Mm. and Ireland. We were European. Europe was a Western Atlantic concept. And that was really new. Now Europe has gone back to where it should be, which is basically Eastern and Central Europe. Back to where it should be? Yeah, because because like we're not Europeans, we're Atlantic people. Right. That's my feel. The map of Europe has changed completely from our time, and the future of Europe is not going to be dictated in Brussels. It's going to be dictated in Kiev. And that's why we should worry about it, be concerned about it, and invest time in understanding that. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.